0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, episode 37 of the Cutoffs and Coffee podcast. We are your hosts, CT and James from T3 Performance. As always, we're here in our cutoffs with our coffee, and we have an exciting conversation for you today. We're going to learn a ton from these guys. We've actually got our second ever quadcast, so we brought two doctors on. We have Dr. Wakas Pervais and Dr. Robert Block. They are chiropractors from Malta Chiropractic. They're actually the official chiropractors for the Albany Firewolves professional lacrosse team. And they were my chiropractors when I was playing professionally for the Albany Empire. These two are awesome. A little bit of info about them. Dr. Wakas Pervais, attained his doctorate from Northeastern College of Health and Science with a special focus on functional movement and the assessment of the body. Dr. Perface's goal is to address the root of the patient's problem in order to more effectively approach the symptoms and reduce the likelihood of the symptoms returning. And we get into that. We take a deep dive into kind of his approach to training here on the podcast. Dr. Robert Block, is a graduate of National University of Health Sciences. Dr. Block has been in clinical practice for over 25 years and is the only chiropractor in Saratoga County, New York, to have earned a postgraduate degree from the American Chiropractic Rehab Board. So these guys are awesome. They were a lot of fun to talk to. We take a deep dive into low back pain and what we can do to Clean it up and fixed it. We talk a lot about return to play for not only athletes, but for your weekend warriors. And these guys, again, I keep saying it, they were so much fun. They're so awesome to talk to. They're so knowledgeable. And I think there's going to be something that every individual, depending on, excuse me, no matter your skill set or what you do in life, I think there's going to be some information that you guys can take from them. Um, And hopefully you enjoy listening to it as much as we. Enjoyed recording it.
1: And today's episode is brought to you by Succulent Coffee Roasters. Now, this is a nice spot in Newport Beach, California, that I happened to visit um, when I was on vacation in Arizona. Um, And the coffee shop is phenomenal. There's a website. You can order the high-quality coffee that you guys need to get stimulated in the morning. They have a couple really high-rated brands from Coffee Review. One of those popular uh, brands is New Wave Coffee. Um, But my favorite product is this steep coffee pouch. So it's just like making tea with a little bit more of a punch. So it's like, if you don't have a Keurig, right, you can just put this in hot water anywhere, or if you want to steep it in cold water on the go, it tastes delicious. So succulentcoffeeroasters.com, check it out for all your stimulant needs.
0: Yes. And if you enjoy what we're doing on the podcast, follow us, subscribe, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast, reach out to us on our individual social medias. Let us know who you want to see on the podcast, who you want us to talk to. We've got a lot of awesome conversations coming up in the future, but we're always open to hear who you, the listener wants to talk to. All right. Episode 37. Let's get into it. We've been hyping it up again. I know everybody's going to enjoy it. Enjoy the conversation with malta chiropractic crew dr robert block and dr wakas pervase enjoy gentlemen welcome to the show this is our second quadcast where we've got four of us on talk and we're really excited to have you two. um thank you for joining us on cutoffs and coffee
2: our pleasure thanks for having us thank you for having us
0: yeah absolutely let's just dive into the questions here to get to get to know a little bit more about you guys what are what are a couple of things that James and I need to know that, uh, you know, about you two individually that we can't find from a quick Google search?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll go, I'll go first. And, um,
0: <laughs>
2: this is something when I first came to the country is, um, I was actually awarded nicest kid in school in fifth grade and in our parade, they had this big ceremony. So, um, And I got 50 bucks, which was really one of the highlights of my fifth grade career. So, yeah, that was a big deal for me that you can't find on the Internet. So got the nicest kid award in elementary school.
0: You still a nice guy?
2: I'd say I'm a nice guy.
0: Worth 50 bucks, at least.
2: I mean, that's big money when you're in fifth grade. (laughs) It's
0: huge. Rob, how about yourself?
2: Uh. I was thinking of the context of the
3: conversation here with the sports team, uh, and, and actually pretty foundational, oddly, growing up. I'm, I'm a lifetime, long-suffering Jets fan. Um, and you know, it seems like a small thing, but it kind of defines me because you know, growing up, you know, I, I just saw a guy in 30 years, and after saying hi to him, he's like, uh, Jets, right? You, know, you just kind of remember. And uh, <laughs> it taught me some humility, some patience. And uh, a quick story to that is actually two things in my household. You had to be a Jets fan for my kids, and it couldn't be a Yankees fan. So I'm a Mets fan, and, and I think I hate the Yankees as much as I kind of like the Mets. And uh, my daughter going to Ecuador for a year uh, on an exchange program, wanted to bring gifts to the the families, to bring up little trinkets and things. So she had an Amazon Cart 20 Yankee hat, uh, which was not stinking happening. So I... Uh, I there's 20 kids in Ecuador jet hats
0: now. Nice. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Yankees fans, please don't stop listening yet. I hope this didn't ruin the, uh, <laughs> ruin the episode for you. Um, and, uh, also second question here to follow up. What, what is the last skill if you guys remember teaching yourself or a skill you're currently working on right now?
2: For me, it's uh, I'm, I've been working on this for about a year and a half now uh, in And I'm big on handstands, so I'm working on uh, 10-second, one-handed handstands. So I'm at about three seconds. So my goal is to be able to hold a one-handed handstand at any given time, anywhere. So that's the skill that I've been working on.
1: Oh, I like that. Do you follow, uh, like, a progression for that, or do you just flip over and land on one hand? and? (laughs)
2: Uh yeah, it's, it's honestly that it, uh, it's just you just
1: stand on one hand and then you have to
2: build the strength on it by using a wall. You have to find the proper line and then you have to find counterbalances. Uh, but it's a uh, it's as simple as just doing, and then you'll figure out how to do it better and so on. I love it. Um, I, on and off, uh,
3: mess with of the harmonica. I always want to play an instrument. And uh, so the neat thing is I, I can just have it in my car. And, and when I get kind of a little half obsessed with something, I can be driving around. I'm sure the people driving by this idiot with a harmonica in his face, just monkeying around with stuff. But uh, you know, I can do it kind of anytime. So every once in a while, I'll just have the harmonic in my pocket. And uh, you know, trying to do, uh, I don't know, like Neil Young type stuff. Or I, I hear some, At like Christmas time, I, I learn something you know, like an idiot for the family. And, it's uh, all monkey with that. I always want to play an instrument. I can't say that I do play an instrument, but I can pop out some things that you, you may recognize. Um, beyond that, clinically, I'm through a coursework now called uh, pain reprocessing therapy, which, you know, as we go further, probably chat a little bit about it. It's pretty intriguing stuff. Um, so I'm right about halfway through the, uh, the online uh, training for it. It dovetails into a lot of the rehab that we've been uh, doing and some of the um, education we've had. Uh, so that's pretty fascinating stuff. So I'm kind of knee deep into that right now and and checking out some of the research. So kind of going into the clinical part, that's that's kind of a, a, a strong interest right now.
0: That's cool. Those are all three things that we haven't haven't heard. I, I love asking that question because it's always so interesting to see what people care about outside of you know what they do on a on a daily basis. At, at work and, and for their job. And, and those are a couple of things that I haven't even thought about one. We've talked about handstands on here a few times, but one hand, James, I think that's probably this afternoon. Yeah. We'll start, we'll start diving into those. Sounds like a plan. All right, guys, why don't you tell us, um, tell us your stories. Tell us, tell us how, tell us how you met, tell us how you got to where you're at today. Tell us about building your, your business and kind of what you guys do and bring us up to pace on where you're at today Um, the professional sports teams that you've worked with and just let everybody know more about you um, so it makes more sense when we get into the to the rest of our conversation
2: um well we met actually I shadowed Rob before I got into grad school I I you have to shadow a certain amount of hours and I shadowed him and when I shadowed him back in the day he was like uh just you know joking around like You know, are you sure you want to do this? This is a crazy profession, and, you know, trying to get me away from the profession. So, and he actually taught me a lot before I got a chance to go into chiropractic college, which I've never been, had never been to a chiropractor until I got into chiropractic college or went to Rob. And he was actually my first chiropractor that I shadowed before shadowing numerous other ones so I can understand the lay of the land and what chiropractic is, what. Does it mean to each of the practitioners that went to grad school, graduated, and then came back, worked at a few other places for a year, and then Rob and I connected and we decided to open up our clinic and went from a small facility to a big facility. And that's kind of like this <laughs> was that eight years condensed in a very small conversation. Um, So it was really really cool and how we connected from when we first started to where we then connected when i graduated to where we are now five years in practice together yeah so yeah i'll let rob take over on his part on how we connected and such so hello you
3: know he kind of shadowed me around and he said he's going to go to pt
2: or maybe be a chiropractor
3: and, and despite my uh, my, my honest uh, evaluation, the knucklehead became a chiropractor. So uh, yeah, I feel like I owed him. You know, Now, you know, this guy was the wrong way anyway. Uh, not that it's the wrong way, actually, but PT's have many more opportunities. Chiropractic, we're, we're getting more opportunities. Um, so kind of tongue in cheek, I'm like, I don't know if that's the way you wanna go. Um, plus he brought cupcakes. Yes, I so, do bring a lot of cupcakes. So, you know, it was good to have him hanging around. The kids really liked it. Um, you know, down the road, you know, so we were still in touch. to come back, and and uh, you know, I was really pushing the rehab model like crazy, and and that's kind of part of my you know, story. Is just how it kind of went into rehab because I'm old. I've been doing this 30 years, and first out of chiropractic school it was very dogmatic, and and still is, frankly. Um, and and I understand why. I mean, you learn the protocols, you learn the basics. Uh, but the real cool stuff kind of comes, you know, hopefully you get it in school, but certainly that wasn't being taught when I was there. Um, and I don't know if it was out in contemporary, you know, care at the time. Um, so part of that was uh, trying to pitch that I was frustrated personally to go to kind of my story or I got into a rehab or something with a more active care model. Um, I didn't like the dog dogmatic type of protocol-based care. It was hammer and nail. I got a hammer, you're a nail. We do kind of the same thing. Um, There are many varieties. There are a lot of great chiropractors, a lot of good clinicians, but we didn't really have that active care based thinking about movement and and restoration of function. Um, So I was a little frustrated. In fact, I was a lot frustrated because of dogmatism. I just seemed too too didactic, too straight. Um, This is the way you do it. And uh, I, I got Craig Liebenson's book. Are you guys familiar with Craig at all? Or um, great text. Uh, he's on his third uh, edition now. It's uh, Rehab of the Spine: A Practitioner's Manual. And basically, Craig is just a great um, uh, synthesizer. He takes information from everyone, reads everything, and then he puts it through this tremendous filter. He understands it all, and you can see how all things interrelate. So very fortunate to, first off, have read the beginning of his book, and just about the time I read his intro, two pages in, I'm like, I found it, man, you know, like 10 years in practice, uh, some things just didn't seem to click for me, didn't energize me, and like, this guy's talking, you know, from all these different angles, so this is interesting, um, and just about that time, a buddy of mine had brought his program his a three-year diplomate program to our area, and what he did, everyone who wrote in his book, is he edited it, but he had Stu McGill, and he had... Vladimir Yanda, all these, these great people in rehab, writing sections, and then Craig would write them as well. Well, he brought a lot of these authors, these researchers to the program. So we learned from the people who did the research. So we're just crazy fortunate. Um, There's remarkably interesting people, and then Craig synthesizing everything. So that that, that was you know, the inroad's like, okay, I've the inspiration. I'm reading everything and writing everything down, taking notes, this is what I hoped for. Um, and presented just a very different model rather than the therapeutically focused model where it's a matter of the treatment, the protocol, the intervention. It was about oftentimes active care and even the psychology part of it. There was a psychosocial part uh, of people getting better in that understanding. Uh, So just opened doors wide, wide open on a million planes. And then when we got together and looked at the facility one of the neat opportunities when we moved to our bigger facility, lacoste uh, was actually working at Philities. He's our, our, our fitness director. He was working as a um, as a strength coach and as a personal trainer over the Y. So we figured, well, we' we'll got this facility. Let's get some stuff over here and you can personal train here, integrate it. Um, a lot of it was kind of a business decision at first, but it's morphed into as we've added different things and incorporated more active care. Thankfully, having the facility, as I'm sure you guys know, if you, get, you know if you got the toys and the tools, you can do some interesting things. Um, so as we started to bring these things in, we started to see how they really blended into a model that, at first, we saw as kind of a hypothetical, you know, patient-centered focus. Well, how do we get people to move? How do we empower them? You know, because they can do an exercise to feel better rather than me treating them. They, you know, they can see first off that that's a way forward. You know, it's, it's a restoration of function. That decreases that pain, as opposed to me doing something and them being dependent. And that's part of the model that I always dislike about chiropractic or any passive care. It's dependent on us kind of fixing them, but they always needed the
2: therapeutic.
3: For here, perhaps you can see that they can function better more efficiently, and then you don't get that tissue overload. And so many of the injuries we see are, are even you know, that, that that last. You know, you stop on a dive and there goes the ACL. That, that's an overuse injury. That's a now, that was ready to go. You can't stop, decelerate, and, and not tear your ACL. You know, something was already going on there. So um, looking at how do we correct that function um, was a much more uh, empowering model. Um, and the neat thing is, and, and there are many people who talk about it, Charlie Weingroff. people who talk about the fact that um, changing that movement pattern, the therapy or the rehab is actually training. It dovetails into performance enhancement. So, the education that you pursue, they seem to be therapeutics and performance enhancement are kind of integrated, even if you don't want it to be. I mean, if you make the movement more efficient, um, the people don't hurt themselves as much and they perform better. So, that's kind of what the model has gotten into now. So, we start to incorporate a lot of other things from uh, programs for movement competence to help people get past injuries. That dovetails right into sending them over to a cause to evaluate for um, either load or volume or endurance or or, um, something a little more sports specific and movement um, with our our fitness team. So that's that's kind of the long-winded version of kind of where we got. now we got about 6,000 square feet, about 4,000 dedicated to to movement-based types of interventions. We have some yoga, we have some virtual reality we can chat about. But as we start to get new toys, we start to get an idea of how we can use them to, to benefit the patients. And and classically, we've also found that there's research on fine every facet of it, from the from yoga-based therapies to uh virtual reality, which you've got a virtual reality room, in, and there's tons of cool literature on, on the value of that.
2: So we have just
3: kind of amassed a whole bunch of toys,
2: and, and now we're learning how to play with them better. And uh, kind of piggybacking off of what Rob's saying, that Cool thing in our clinic is that you don't have to come into our clinic just through chiropractic. You can enter at different platforms, whether it's the yoga platform, whether it's the virtual reality platform or the fitness platform. So, or that we also have a spine stability program. So which you'll have to, you get evaluated prior to the program itself to bridge the gap between rehab to performance that uh, Rob runs. you don't have to come to our clinic. Hey, I get chiropractic care, even though it's a chiropractic uh, facility. Or, but we try to look at it as a clinic or a center that houses, you know, your health and your fitness and your movement and uh, just other parts of your life. So we can just look at it from all different avenues or venues to help the person. Like Rob was saying, this patient-centered model instead of the, you know, uh, doctor-driven model in a sense it's not what I think you need. It's what, does, what do you need and do we have that in-house? And also we have great connections with other practitioners. So if they need surgery or if they need an injection or if they need other types of care, it's just a quick phone call, text, fax, a way that we can get that set up much faster because of the established connection that we have with these guys and the report that we built on what we do as clinicians As well as what they expect
1: from us as clinicians and hopefully what we expect from them as clinicians and i i think that you know a lot of what you guys said there just makes so much sense from a standpoint of you have the connections with the surgeons you have connections with you know the doctors that are seeing patients and then you have connections with the trainers and the performance specialists and it's one cohesive unit and that makes so much sense but we all know that that's not the, the typical healthcare model or performance model um, that we see. Um, and you guys kind of already answered the question I usually ask is, was there a paradigm shifting moment that you guys had in, in your careers? And, and it sounds like it was from um, being exposed to Dr. Craig's book in, in rehab and movement and and this you know, new approach to, to restoring function um, versus a, a more, you know, maybe, you um, frustrated dogmatic approach that we've typically seen in, in chiropractics um, could you guys kind of maybe explain that to our listeners in in a way where um, we take an athlete who who's coming back from an injury and let's just use a lower back injury and and what would that typical dogmatic approach be with that athlete and what's more of a restorative uh, approach kind of looking at that injury in two different lenses might help um, me understand that that difference a little bit better
3: that's yeah, a really cool question. I like the perspective. Um, and it's not just chiropractic, it's therapeutics. Um, just to kind of, not just blast my own profession, not that I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry about that, but yeah. um, oftentimes the, the healthcare for spine care in particular, is, is um, it, it's beyond Dr. Grubin, it's really a matter of therapeutics. So we try to calm it down, uh, but we really don't get into the nitty gritty as to what may have caused that we consider a biomechanical overload? What are the over-stresses? What are things that allow for it? If you think about even, say, you guys as an athlete off-season, you know, you go to, like, Exos or one of your facilities, and you're going to try to find out what's the movement inefficiency that, you know, for one, is going to affect your performance. But if you had an injury, a naggy injury, now we're going to try to figure out what's that key link, what's setting off that, that you know, compensatory pressure. Um, either because of the injury or perhaps there's a, a movement inefficiency previous to that. Uh, one of the things about athletes, great athletes are great compensators. So, you know, see how people move. And sometimes you guys just, you know, you know, when you break it down, the movement may be a little clunky, but, but your performance is exceptional because you just, you know, that, that's the, the nimble nature of great athletes, but it allows for overuse. Um, another discussion because athletes are, are also interesting in that regard. it gets power it right through, and, and that, that's a, a, an interesting um, uh, population to deal with. Um, but from a, you know, say an athlete who hurts their back, so the more classic type of, say, uh, manual therapy or conservative care or chiropractic PT, etc., is going to be therapeutic. Say we say we're off season or, or the person's shut down, so we're not trying to get them back to play. You don't think they can play through it. We want to know what kind of injury it is, first off. Um, But once we find it, a lot of it's therapeutically based. For chiropractic, it's manipulation, commonly. Not only, but it could be uh, physical therapy modalities. But these are all to kind of calm it down and let it heal. Um, They respond well, commonly. Manipulations, mobilization, things that PTs do can really soothe the area. But the benefit comes from the passive interaction between the practitioner and the patient, we're helping you. And you'll hear that individual with chronic pain saying, oh, I always gotta go to my chiropractor, or I love my chiropractor, or I love my PT, which is really cool, great for the ego, all that stuff. But there's that reliance, we're missing something and and, and uh, makes you feel kind of like you did a good job, but but what you're missing is helping the person take care of themselves, and health is empowering. Health is, is the fact that you can take care of yourself that's healthy mind, body, Parent dependence being bred when their care is passive and reactive, and that could be an injection. I know people who every three four months they get their facet injection, but we've never turned how to you know, taught them how to stop loading the cassette so much so that it gets mad every three months and needs the injection. Um, it breeds fear. First off, we're going to try to understand where the pain generator comes from. What tissues are injured? of when it comes to rehabs that first treatment is teach your patient not to harm themselves. So you gotta teach them how to stop ticking the sucker off, plain and simple. Otherwise you can't progress. Um, but beyond that, we want to find out and we want to calm it down We want therapeutics. So when it calms down enough, why is that tissue getting overloaded? Is there an insufficiency in, in core stability functionally when they move? So we want to test for that. We don't want to just see, you know, how does the muscle work? What happens when they lift their leg? How do they breathe? Um, is there a cause because you have what we may call a lower cross syndrome or great cook uh, we call layered syndrome, where, say, the the, so as the hip flexors are tight? And because of that, when you try to extend your hip, you can't extend through the hip, regenerating your power or should. So now you have to steal that motion from your off our spine. And, and, and we want more stability. So it's fine here and there, but if you're continually um, getting your motion through something that really is intended to be stable, you're ticking it off. that's that cause you may not even feel the pain until that one final move one of the things some of the psychology of it is it seems like you're fragile because all i did was you know push off and, and i i reached back for this pass or i i picked something overhead and boom there she went and it doesn't make sense it doesn't correlate because you did something innocuous you should have been able to handle it and there she goes so unless you understand the mechanism you feel fragile we understand the mechanism and, and it's not just that we see it, but we, we get an audit. So if you bend back and your back hurts, and I get your hips moving and I engage your core and I give you an exercise, something active, and you bend back and it hurts less, for one, I know I'm on the right track, but you know that you don't need me to fix you. You can see where the, the inefficiency was, where that key link was, and then you can actually make a correction yourself. So that's also going to be enhancing your performance as we go. We have a focused goal towards treating you but that blends right into what we want to enhance for for your performance, because you're wobbling through your torso, you have an energy, leak, you have an inefficiency, you can't perform as well.
2: So it becomes kind
3: of a natural model to the diagnostics and the understanding of of the cause right into for the person who may want it uh, performance enhancement type training and injury resilience, because now if you're moving right, you're not beating up on that, you're not so dependent. The goal is to actually help the person to be able to help themselves, and then just, you know help them as much as they need, but fall into the background rather than feel than feeling that they need us all the time.
2: Yeah, it's kind of great for the ego, but frank truth is, we're not doing a great job if we allow for that to happen. The thing that Rob's saying, I think, transferring that locus of control to us helping them understand that they're not really broken; it's just figuring out the patterns that need to be corrected because Let's just take a simple exercise, squatting, right? You can't see yourself squatting, whether it's in the mirror or what have you, someone else who has a keen eye for that movement needs to see like, hey, your knees are collapsing. Hey, your ankle turns in. Hey, your body shifts to the left or you drop or you helicopter your torso a little bit. So someone that knows those things is well equipped to know how to pick those things out from a person that they're assessing has to be well equipped with the education. Then they tell them, hey, your knees collapse. Hey, bunch of different faults. Now let's fix it. And like what Rob was saying, the audit itself has to make sense because did it hit the mark? Did it help? Hey, we did this thing where we put the band around your knees or we did some blue bridges as a primer or a warm up. And now the squat again, look, it went better. Perfect, we're on the right track. It's not that you were broken, your patterns were off, which then caused that dysfunction of that movement insufficiency or that energy leak to come on. And then from there, that's like that—that's where the fitness comes in, right? So when we see patients, patient comes in, young male athlete, high school, college, wherever, weekend warrior, my back hurts, we figure out through proper assessment, examinations that tell us, hey, what is the root of that problem? We figure out the root of the problem, give them an end of treatment plan, right? We don't wanna see you for the rest of your life. I like you, I don't wanna keep seeing the office. If we can change that locus of control to you, it's a Saturday night, ooh, I hurt my back. Oh, what was that exercise that he gave me? Made it feel better, do the exercise. Now you are in control of your health. It's a patient-driven model. You now know I can go away. I don't have to be like, oh, no, I have to go to my chiropractor every week for the rest of my life. It's do the exercise. So now there's no insufficiency on that energy leak. And how do we turn? Now your rehab good. You're functionally able to move. Now do we get into the performance part of it, which is when we have the yoga or we want to teach you a little bit more, we have the spine stability class, which is a bridge program. that we work on with performance and stuff, depending on what your sport is, right? Firefighters that I train have to do other things than the volleyball players that I train, have to do other things than the basketball players that I train, have to do other things than the soccer players that I train. So, but they still have to have strength, right? But if we don't get those like minimum competency stuff out of the way, then I'm building a building on top of a, weak structure or a weak foundation. And that's what our bridge program is really good on that Rob runs, And we kind of do on our first floor, which is our therapeutics part of it, which is the chiropractic and such.
0: There was so much good stuff there. Um, I want to get back to the, the, the core conversation here shortly, but the, the question that comes up to me is we still have So many people stuck in this, how you guys kind of refer to it as the the doctor driven model, because it's easy. The the passive approach is easy. Taking a pill, getting a prescription is easy. So what are the conversations that we can have with those individuals who are kind of stuck in that loop where they are no longer in control? They have been given pills and prescriptions and are very good friends with their chiropractors because they go see them all the time. What are the conversations we can have with those individuals to hopefully get them to work their way towards the patient-centered model, the uh, rehab-based model? Um, what, what are some of the things that we need to say to convince them that what they're doing is not great for their longevity and what they need to do is, is move instead of have somebody move themselves?
3: I, I think it's the relationships and it, it's a show-me thing um the conversation is there but but you also ultimately have to have that outcome you got to show them that it works um classically and when i was first in rehab i would be talking and talking um kind of had this 13 year old girl who taught me a lesson i'll never forget because i was getting <laughs> uh the buddy of mine his daughter brought her in. She had back pain and you know, i'm reading all this stuff like i said i was passionately reading all this stuff and um uh and just loving it, so it's all in my head, it's swirling around. And uh, this young lady comes in with, you know, some badness. So she had kind of classic lower cross, you know, so is her tight, loose for weak core, you know, she slouched the whole deal. So I'm getting into how uh, this biomechanical overload, and, and I'm trying to, you know, dumb it down in a sense of a, a decent vernacular, and I'm doing a terrible job. I'm using all the verbiage that's in my head. You know, and after I go through however many minutes I do this, you know, and halfway through her eyes glazed over. Probably one minute in at best, eyes glazed over, and uh, I just kept going because I, you know, I had to finish the ride. I, you know, I had to try to get it out there, even though I knew I was talking, you know, to this very sweet wall, and um, and finally just looked at me and she's like, I'm 14 years old, and, and I just like, oh crap, man. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> yeah. The, the there was no conversation. Because I, I just couldn't get it across because uh, I just didn't have the words for it yet. But, but as I've matured with it, and as I've learned and, and, and seen what you know, my mentors had done um, previously and finally gotten the crash down, I won't say much of anything in, until I actually prove it. So, for instance, say someone has a tight psoas muscle. They bend the back, they extend their back hurts. so they're nail no success. We loosen it up, it's something active. I usually try to do it where it's an exercise or so rather than me loosening up for them, they do it. Having them been back, they feel better. And I'll ask for a percentage, how much improving? If it's not there, I'm still chasing it. I still haven't hit that link. So there's no conversation because I don't understand it yet. On the other hand, if, if that audit proves to be beneficial and they feel better, I have insight. Now I can speak to it, but the, the results speak more strongly than anything else. The buy-in is right there because look, you don't need me. I'm going to adjust you. And we're going to see how that feels also. I'm going to treat you. But, and, and this can't be crazy acute. It's got to be semi subacute acute but they're responsive. And, and commonly they are. Now there's that buy-in. See, see the relationship? Here's why it worked. Here's what we have to build. And then I can paint that picture. And now I've got a foothold, not only in the buy-in, but my understanding. Because if it doesn't audit properly, if I don't get the results, I'm sure just like coaching. You give some guy a coach's tip. Or some girl coaching tip, and you know, it works ninety percent of the time, and it cleans things up, and they're hitting the ball better, or they're running faster. If it doesn't work, you know, you got to find another way. So you know, it, it doesn't necessarily work for that person. When they move better, they hit the ball. Now we're digging in. Now we know what that flaw was for them, or how they process things. Um, so the conversation usually comes after the buy-in, and the buy-in is not only for them. Frankly, it's, it's for me. I, I don't know what I have until. I know what I have. So kind of have to play with it a little bit. Um, So I I think it may be, you know, the relationships. If I was guiding someone I wasn't a clinician, I'd hope I had a relationship with someone who I I understood to do some of these things and and steward them to them. Like, look, you got an issue, I want you to work with this person because, uh, again, it's a great dovetail between what we do clinically and then sending them right back to you guys now that they don't have that movement inefficiency or uh, incompetence, um, now you can build off of that. That's kind of the, I uh, uh, imagine you yeah, guys really, the, the FMS SFMA model with Greg Cook. You know, the FMS shows the movement flaw, but if there's pain, they're going to a clinician to clean it up and then back to the trainer to then load it up and, and train it. Um, so the conversation's kind of on the back end of, of getting some more information. If it doesn't work, sometimes we have something else going on. We may have more of a pathophysiological issue that, that needs treatment. Maybe we need that MRI. Um, I'm ambitious. I want to see progress. I expect to see progress. And when I don't, I anticipate there's a reason. And so now I'm digging into why isn't this working. Um, but then the conversation becomes, you know, really cool. Because once they see it, you know, they, they do feel the empowerment. And, and, and now the conversation can go, first up, we demonstrated it. And now we know we want to build it. You know, you want that good. You want that to be sustained. So here's what you have to do. Here's what we do so that doesn't go backwards because we have this, this overload that's happened because of these chronic pressures. We have to eliminate that. And now also the pain naturally becomes an indicator instead of the thing that caused them to come in and create fear and avoidance. Now that pain actually is, is a reminder. Maybe they did something wrong so they can respond to it. So now it's very responsive. And you train them to respond to the pain reasonably as opposed to just either plow through it or avoid it. And that's what you tend to get, like boom or bust. They're plowing through it like crazy uh, until they crash and burn and can't do anything. Um, So so again, it it kind of becomes almost a uh, self-fulfilling, the conversation is just telling them about what just happened rather than preaching to them, like I did with the (laughs) 14-year-old.
0: Yeah. And that's a, that's a great, it's a great answer. And it, it, it comes from the place of, you know, a coach's perspective where we have, and I think every, every coach who has worked with athletes has had these questions An athlete will come up and say something like, Hey coach, do you have a good stretch for this? Right. And, and it's okay. I'm not going to stretch you. I want you to do this, this, and this. And I used to always try to have my hands involved more, right? Okay. We're going to do this. Come here. I'm going to move you. And then we're going to, we're going to go this way and we're going to do it this many reps. Now I'm to the point where it's okay. I, this is what you're going to do for it. And you're going to do it every day, five total minutes a day for the next three weeks. Then you're going to come back to me and, and tell me how you feel. And I have had so much more success doing that kind of putting, putting the power into the athletes, athletes hands where, I will have then guys, even yesterday, come up to the gym and say, Hey man, those ISOs that you told me to do three weeks ago are really paying off. My knees were, were felt horrible 90% of the time. Now they only feel bad 20% of the time. they will say, Oh, what, what did you do? I did what you had told me to do, but I did it 10 minutes a day. I did it every single day, blah, 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 put the power into their hands. And now they realize that they can fix themselves without even needing us. And I think we, that's a, that's a, um, you you know, a big win every time I hear an athlete tell me that, as opposed to, I went and got ice. And then I went and, you know, got the AT to work on me a little bit and I feel better because of it. Cause just from my experience, they rarely feel better long-term after, after going through that process. But I have a lot more people come back to me when you just say, Hey, do this every day for the next three weeks. And they seem to, they seem to clean up whatever, whatever issues they're having. Um, one of those big issues is the lower back, uh, especially with with contact sport athletes, especially with our football players, a lot of guys will come and have lower back issues. So let's talk a little bit about the core, what it is. Let's talk about what it means to have a functional core. Um, and then also what role does that core play into lower back issues in, in sports performance.
3: Yes, um. Uh, it's kind of funny, and I think we're getting away from it in training, thankfully, but you know, the, the, the term came out a while back, core stability, and uh, you know, everyone jumped on that, and then you know, paradoxically, it, and, and to great fault, people would train that stability by repeatedly moving uh, the torso, and, you know, and it's the exact opposite. You know, you want stability to control of motion. How are you going to get stability? Well, you're going to move the hell out of this sucker until so it's like a son of a gun, and that's going to breed stability like playing golf and thinking you're learning how to play football i mean you got to train for what you're you know, what you're trying to uh invoke um but but the core you know the, the torso and the spine is kind of interesting the lumbar spine is is inherently unstable uh, you got five vertebrae stacked on top of each other in each segment you have six ranges of motion you go forward and back side to side and, and they, they rotate uh, they, they've done a, a model a study based if you took all the musculature all these core muscles, if you will, uh, away from the lumbar spine, it can't even actually withstand the weight of the torso, like 20 newtons of force, in North or 200, I think, the, the average weight of a North American male without buckling, which is actually the, the term for enough movement that you injure some of those soft tissues. So without the musculature, the, the lumbar spine is, is just floppy. It's like a slinky, um, but it's central to everything. So we do need stability. We need to generate force off of a stable base and and everything uh, our arms are attached to it, our legs. Um, So we need stability through the torso, yet it's inherently passively unstable. That's where you have the musculature and and you have the the neuromuscular coordination of the nerves um, coordinating to to provide the stability. Um, And it's an integrated System. So it, it, uh, McGill, Stu McGill, who's a great biomechanist, I'm sure you guys are familiar. He um, he, he says 360 degrees of stability, and, and the reason is because it's unstable in, in every range. They so have to stabilize all around. So people like in these you know, these simple answers to complex questions. You know, Okay. So I'm going to work on my rectus abdominis, and I'm going to do sit-ups, or even you know, planks can be beneficial, but you're you're working a facet of it. Now, if you look at his big three, if you look at the way McGill will go about it, or even anti rotation exercises, he's trying to control motion in any of the perspective ranges you may have. Um, beyond that, he then looks at things like super stiffness. So, you know, if you're running, you don't want to be stiff through your core. You don't want to be stable, completely stable. There has to be some fluidity. You want to be stable enough to generate force off of it, but you also have to have some movement. But then at the moment of impact, we want absolute stability through the torso because now you transfer those forces and, and we know that you have greater power if that that moment of stability of stiffness is, is short because then you have this, this summation of all these forces foam that hit of the short swing. uh you see like ed reed back in the day you know running and you know he's He's running after a guy full speed and all of a sudden when he hits just unloads you don't even see it but he he just has to stiffen like a bullet and boom the guy goes flying all of his forces went into to read and through this guy like a rock um you know any type of you know uh, um uh, hitting uh you know karate akia um you know some of the especially more in women's tennis you'll hear know, a grunt um so it's, it's that stiffness right at the moment of impact so it's kind of an interesting structure and I happened upon this kind of by accident. I didn't get this in my training, but if you look at this second episode of Sports Science from ESPN, they do a Joey Porter uh, episode. And it was really cool. Something I'd never picked up before, but they look at the forces that Joey Porter, you know, back in the day with the Steelers, um, imparts to a, a quarterback who's just standing and his blindsided, you know, the guy missed him and, and Porter unloads on the guy. And the force was sick. It was enough to break like eight blocks of cement. Um, and they asked a really cool question was, why, you know, how do you sustain this? How can this you know, how can the quarterback handle this? And it was the fact that the spine had ever thought about it is actually the, the ability to uh, dissipate these forces. So if it was a stiff spine, inherently structurally you hit it, and that thing is going to shatter, and there goes the spinal cord, the whole gig. But the shock absorber, so when it hits, all of the vertebrae were at one point it's disadvantageous for them to be so mobile, and, and unstable, now we get benefit from that instability because now it allows the force to spread all the way out instead of hitting one spot and cracking it. You know, it might hurt his back, but, um, but it was kind of an interesting component to you know, why the spine has such such uh, capacity to be you know, unstable, but we need the stability. So um, the core, is all these things working, and they have to work at the right amount. McGill will talk about that also. There's, there's coordination to it. When do I need it to move when I'm running? When do I need it to be stiff, uh, to exert force when I try to hit that home run? And then beyond that, so that's all the cylinder, the rigid cylinder around it. But then you got the top and bottom, which are so important, it's the diaphragm. The diaphragm imports a uh, uh, a, um, a compressive type of a force, a, a uh, almost like a valsalva if you lift up or you blow out. So as the diaphragm goes down, you're imparting some uh, some stress in the torso, and it co-contracts with the pelvic floor. So you have the stability all the way around, but if you're not breathing abdominally, you're breathing up, you actually have to move. So respiration is so important when it comes to stability as well. And you basically can't be stable without breathing properly. Uh, one researcher, Paul Hodges, showed that, um, I'm pretty sure it was Hodges, um, people with back pain. The diaphragm didn't drop as much for people. They actually did it on ultrasound. They saw the excursion of the diaphragm when, when the diaphragm contracts, it drops and draws air into the lungs and pressurizes the torso. And they showed people with back pain um, in this study that actually the excursion was about half of that of someone who didn't have back pain historically. So it, it shows the, the correlation between the dysfunction, it doesn't show the cause but those people with batman tended not to engage properly. Uh, Lastly, also the the spine in terms of that stiffness, it's a feed forward mechanism. So if I'm gonna move my arm, it's been shown by Hodges and his group also. Before I do that, there are certain muscles in the torso that they engage kind of like prep. So now I have a little bit of base stability to generate force off of. Almost like if you're gonna run, you're gonna get into your stance and you're gonna kind of get ready. You're lining up and uh, you're about to, to, Act as a receiver, and uh, uh, you know you, you kind of are ready to go sometimes, or, or you're about to run, and, and it's prep for the action. And these muscles feed forward before you even get a chance to move your arm or your leg. They show that in both some of these torso muscles engage to give you a stable base to generate force off. So it's very dynamic. It's not this singular thing that you know core stability is this rigid thing that you're going to develop. You actually have to challenge all of those capacities. From a fitness or training perspective you have to train certainly the weak link what does that individual do poorly because that's going to be their cause of compensation um so training as much as it has all these facets training wise we want to ascertain what do they do poorly or, or what functions poorly so we're efficient um it's the only way we can get enough done but you know we're looking at all those facets of, of the um the way the core engages uh, in that individual for
2: performance or for some of our functional training. And within the functional training, like Rob's talking about, like we keep it, like we explain first, we educate a little bit so they understand what they're diving into, not just a, this is what it is. So that's why that audit process works well. So when we talk about functional uh, stability or functional mobility, right? Certain parts of the body are meant to move while other parts of the body are meant to stabilize to make sure the other parts move to give an example, like the hips moves. So your lumbar spine can stabilize. So then your mid back has to move. So your shoulder can stabilize or your neck stabilizes and so on every Mm -hmm. joint just works on top of itself. And when they shift is when there's a dysfunction or a pattern, which then you get hurt a little bit more. So someone Um, Let's just choose football as an example. Someone goes to tackle someone else and they tuck their head, right? That's not good. You can actually get really hurt because they're no longer stabilizing here. They're mobilizing here, which then becomes inappropriate to perform that hit or that performance in that sport. Or when they tuck their or drop their chest, hit someone and not keep their head up, stuff like that. So all those play a role because you have to put people in positions to see where they're not doing so good, the performance part of it, uh, just speaking on football uh, specifically. So one, everything has to build up so stability, mobility, stability, mobility. Once those patterns aren't there, it shifts up or down. You have to look at where did it shift and why did it shift? And is there a reason for that shift?
0: I always ask how, what cause how are we training that how are we training those yeah. things so, in the weight room and then james yeah yeah in the weight
2: room itself we uh we do uh, basic movement assessment we don't do fms we have like a side thing of an fms but we work on like strength endurance um pull so we work on six movements pull push hinge, squat, lunge, and carry are the six movements that we try to incorporate into every workout. And now we've actually introduced mobility. So like we talked about accountability or locus of control and giving the clients, hey, I need you to go do this instead of you being there pulling, pushing, and all that stuff. Because if they show me they can do it on their own, then they're actually gonna do better for themselves. So when we do an initial assessment, when someone comes in, say, I'm training you, CT. okay, cool. So the first half hour of that first one hour workout is just me assessing you. Every exercise, every movement that you do is an assessment of what you can and cannot, or able to, or able unable to. And we have modification. Let's just say we do a squat, we do push-up, we do pull-up, we do minute plank, we do flexibility, and we have to actually do a dynamic that works on coordination. Are you aware of your body as it moves in space? And once we see hey this is not working this is working even though people are going to be pushing that day pulling that day um, carrying that day hinging that day maybe this one's at a three and the other person's at a seven and this one's at a negative four and that their goal is to get to zero and someone else's goal is to get from seven to ten and stuff like that so a good way to assess it is just having a Simple Movement Competency Test. So people do FMS, which is great. Um, I'm just not 100% convinced that FMS is the end all be all. Uh, I like to mesh a few things from Boyle, from Cressy. Uh, I'll do some of the FMS, some MAG-7 stuff that Craig Levinson does. And sometimes I come up with my own because when we train firefighters, does it really matter that they cannot do a chin-up? No but does it matter that they can pipe pull this motion and their shoulders don't hurt? Yeah, are they using their low back, right? So I have them do some of the stuff that they do in their sport, whether it's firefighting or other sports that are more generic sports, football, baseball, basketball and stuff like that. So I can see where are they? So if they're a basketball player there volleyball player, let me just see you jump, let's see your power, right? So all those play an assessment and then we just put it on a little platform, or I just write it to the side that says, yep, we got to work on jumping for this person, Oh, they have knock knees when they jump, or plant, or when they jump off. So then we go into more sport specific. Do they know how to change direction? How's their reaction time? Do they understand brain-body connection to a external cue, meaning a whistle, right? Sometimes it's easier. I can't tell you, hey, just. Throw the ball as far as you can versus like, hey, you see that spot over there? Try to hit that ball into that spot. So now you've just honed in on that one spot. And your goal is to focus that ball towards that one spot versus like, oh, I just got to throw it as far as I can and try to hit that wall. So you're really gonna to try to hit that ball to that wall and into that one spot. So you're gonna go a little bit more. So those external cues are super important, like Winkleman talks about. So Times there's pain we pause we adjust the weight or the load and if we still there is pain
1: dive into you know what an assessment is it's just like let's say we're a pitching coach and we have a pitching lesson right our assessment is like let's watch this kid throw right and then let's go from there you know it 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 makes so much sense um before we move on from the spine i kind of want to go back um and this is something that always like i wondered why do we do this why do we do this and let's say a pitcher has uh expresses some back pain when they're throwing um our first you know what we see a lot is like oh let's get this kid over here in a sumo stance pal off press we're going to do three sets of 10 and boom we're going to go back to throwing oh wait the back pain's still there that's not a magic pill Uh the spine is so you know complex and fascinating Um, and and you were talking about the diaphragm um, and and how the majority of people that express um, back pain end up having, uh, you said, a lower diaphragm or the inability to... um, It doesn't drop as far down, actually.
3: Um, With this population of people they tested who had back pain. Mm
1: And and that would almost lean on saying that, like, you know, being aware of our diaphragm and how how we use it is is something all athletes who produce force should be able to understand because there is that correlation of what our spine does and how it helps us produce force. What are some specific things we can do to address, like, creating awareness through our diaphragm, training our diaphragm to get stronger? Before, before Rob answers, I just want to let you guys know, you'll see our
2: cameras are, like, chest up. My belly's hanging out because I've been belly breathing the whole time. So that's another reason breathing. <laughs> really, because from here up, I'm good. Uh, that's why sure. your belly's hanging. That's why. That's <laughs> why. That's why, that's
1: why, that's why that's the only reason my belly's
2: hanging out, okay, because I'm diaphragmatic breathing. Whatever. <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, the ability. I
3: mean, you see coaching. You can have someone in this isolated situation. They they seem to know that it's the the skill set. But so then how does it transfer the gameplay and fatigue and, and, and situational type of consideration? So um, and McGill will say it and, and we see also in studies that for one, you would need endurance. Um, that's a certain muscles. When you look at, say, quadratus lumborum, we look at um, uh, the lumbar power spinals, it's not strain. Um, it's endurance. But I, I suggest it's also endurance under the demand, the, the functional demand of the situation. You know, do they fall back to a pattern that, that they, they've done throughout the course of time or a day, or is it you know, almost, almost hyperventilation? I think a lot of athletes, and again, athletes are great compensators. It's remarkable how many athletes breathe into their chest when they do a base assessment of their back pain, and they're doing it, I and mean, you're always breathing. It's like 14 to 16,000 times a day. It's, it's, it, it runs automatically have to is breathing and bracing so bracing is the stability component of it but but if it's going to be one or the other although they should be simultaneous it's going to be breath otherwise you pass out you know you die if you need it so even if you breathe inefficiently, you're breathing so the oxygenation is the main thing if you're breathing incorrectly you're grooving that pattern that's just the way you're doing it if you have a rigid thoracic spine and you're stuck like this and you can't bring yourself up if you bring yourself upright, you're going to have your ribs coming up. Your diaphragm is, is now they call uh, open scissors. It's not pressurizing the torso, so you're going to lose stability. Uh, it's one of the consequences, say, your rigid thoracic spine. So if you have that, you can't breathe correct? That pattern is, is mandated because you have to breathe. So it's like running with your shoe untied. It's just you know you have an energy leak. Like it's inefficient. Um, so you may have to address that. I mean, if you have that biomechanical component. Who cares what you train? I could have you force a belly breath, but then when you get back to normal function, standing up and walking, let alone playing under a, a respiratory demand, you're gonna be breathing through your chest like crazy. Um, so we have to see what's the, what's the obstacle. Um, if there's an obstacle, especially you know, again tantamount to your, your shoe being untied or your, your tire being underinflated, you're not gonna function efficiently. So you have to get rid of that obstacle to the efficient manifestation of a normal pattern. You look at the pattern, you look at babies, they're belly breath, little kids, this, this is optimal. We're programmed, it's in our brain. So for some people, you just get rid of that obstacle. You kind of get them an idea that they should be more upright and it starts to manifest pretty naturally. If you do something under a load, if you were say doing a farmer's uh, carry um, uh, or a suitcase carry, you know, and, and that's one of the things I teach in that, and we call it a spine stability program, but it's really more of an, uh, an educational program uh, one of the first things I teach them, the first exercise I give them is a the dying bug. Because doing a dying bug correctly with your ribs down into a parallel position with your, your pelvic floor, you have to breathe through your belly. Um, especially if you use a bit of a wall press, now you've locked your chest. So so I'll do that right off the bat just so people get a, a feel for it. And we make it automatic. You know, We tap into the automation of it. For one, it should be automatic. But if we mandate it, I consider it a training, you know, makes it harder to fall. Uh, if, if I can kind of prompt it, so now we start to get that sense. Of, now they can tune in because you're always breathing. You can't be overly mindful. I'm coaching someone to breathe through your belly, breathe through your belly. Now I'm saying, you know, some dude's going to chase you at the same time. And you're going to be half exhausted and, you know, and you got to jump over this guy and not trip and still breathe through your stomach while you're thinking about completing this play. Forget about it. Um, let alone even just, you know, walking to your car. Um, but if we can tap into that that automation, uh, so we'll do things like exercise that require it. someone doing a suitcase carry under a sufficient load, they got a belly breath. You know, I had a guy down the other day, everyone else was kind of nice to one guy I know pretty well. So while he's walking around, I give him a shot in the stomach. Because if you're breathing through your belly, your stomach's gonna be tight. You know, <laughs> there, kind of laughs like I didn't think about it, but I just kind of thought I know this guy enough, I'm gonna give him a little shot. Uh, but you know, it's gonna be tight, it has to be. You know, so it's happening, the fact that it's happening even when you're not thinking about it, because we don't have to be overly mindful. You want to be mindful enough to know if you're screwing it up. You know, you got to be able to respond to the fact that it's not working, um, and and maybe that's an audit. Maybe my backer is going, "How am I doing?" The other thing is postural considerations, because if you're slouching, you can't go like three It's impossible. And and I'll demonstrate that to the individuals in the program as well, or to my athlete. And you got an athlete, and you got a tremendously you know, fit individual. But, but they're doing so many things wrong again because they compensate so well, but there's consequences. Uh, they have a rigid thrust spine, or they're a great athlete and they do this all the time upright when they're, you know,
0: doing their athletic endeavor. But then they're sitting around
3: on their phone slouching forward. Half the time they're practicing something correctly, half the time they're practicing it incorrectly, you know, from a coaching perspective. And that's why I tell them also, you know, if, you're, if you're the driving range and the ball's going pretty straight and far, keep going. You start slicing the crud out of that sucker, and you can't correct it by, you know, switching something. Walk away. Go do something else. you fatigue. You're going to start practicing crap. And we don't want to practice crap. And stuff. Um, but a lot of it's really trying to set that automation and let them see the connection. You know? We have to have the buy-in. So part of it is so that it's a bit of a training tool. But some of it is also, I mean, especially a lot of athletes. Why are they going to believe me? You know, that's That's what they do. They move all the time. Why are they going to believe what I'm saying? Well, I got to show them. So when they start to see that connection, they get a, you know, a, an understanding of the demand. Now they're going to get a little better sense of it and they want to perform. Um, and the person with back pain is also going to notice it doesn't hurt so much. So there's that audit as well, or that, that awareness. I consider sort of basic responsiveness, one of, one of the best tools we've got. If you realize that you're thirsty, take a drink of water. You realize your back hurts and now you're upright and you are breathing a little bit better, it doesn't hurt. You know, I don't need to tell you anything. I may have to make sure you understand it, but it's right there. It's it's empirical. Um, if it doesn't work, I'm not I'm not going to start preaching that. I may mention it as a as an ultimate goal, but if I'm starting to say how important that is and it doesn't help you, why do you care? Why would you put time into something that's not fruitful?
2: And uh, just on the fitness realm of it, what we'll do for fitness is when we do certain things. Our goal, like give an example, just an elbow plank or a push-up plank. Um, We don't try to hold it for minutes. We just do, if you can hold it properly for one minute straight and without breaking or shaking, then that's it, you've reached your goal. Then our goal is actually to add a load to your low back or mid back area to now have a weighted plank. So then if you can hold that for about a minute, then we keep adding the load. There, in my eyes, there's certain exercises we don't do in our facility, like um, crunches, we don't do. There's really not one time in any sport or any time in the world besides you getting up from laying down position and sitting up is the only time you really do a crunch. Second thing is we don't do burpees. There's really not one sport that does burpee, not mixed martial arts. I wrestled in high school and college. We never did a burpee. There's some sprawling you can do in mixed martial arts or wrestling or jiu jitsu, or what have you but you never really do a burpee. So we don't do certain things, but going back to the core and um, stability part of it and endurance, we want to work on the strength because there's not one time also in your life that you've ever held (sighs) for more than a minute, right? You might have to hold something up while you're helping your friend move or you might have to hold something up while other things are being shifted around. But it's rarely like more than a minute so a minute's a good timeline that works for us, that we hold things, whether it's the farmer's carry, overhead, bottoms up, a bunch of those movement patterns that stabilize this, whether it's at the shoulder or the core, um, that we really load uh, it longer than a minute. And then we'll just load the weight instead of time.
0: Yeah, that kind of takes us back to our handstands. If you can hold a handstand for a minute, I mean, I don't That's think exactly. you have to do it. <laughs>
2: got to do one hand instead of this two hand crap
0: let's do one right two's gotcha. way too easy um i want to go back real quick you had mentioned um a I, an exercise i believe you were calling a, a something bug dying bug dying. will you can oh, yeah. you explain that a little bit that um i i it, and that's a pelvic floor kind of di- diaphragmatic breathing exercise right um will you describe that to the people who um are, are listening and can't see the video kind of how to set that up because i i think that's something that i used to use all the time and that would i never knew the mechanism of why it cleared my backup but it always always helped when i was tight to be able to do something like that
3: it's really cool because it, when you're talking about functional training we want to train to function right So we want to emulate the way you're really going to move um if you look at CNS called dynamic neuromuscular stabilization that's happening into grouped patterns or, or developmental patterns. So uh, some of the things, in fact, if you compare a little child to baby as they progress in their development and their, their neural, their maturation uh, from a movement standpoint, they move like little mini acids. All of our correct movement patterns are already ingrained and, and, and they manifest as our nervous system matures. Um, so we're kind of tapped back into the DNS exercise in part, um, at least in the manner that we do it. We're tapping into movements very much like a child. At About three and a half months, you start to see that the ribs go down, and, and you get a um, a parallel uh, diaphragm and pelvic floor. And when you do that, now you get that nice compression in the torso, and the prospect of being stable enough to to roll over and get upright and move and walk. Um, but these are the basics because they're so foundational to initiating movement. They're also optimized. These are the right ways to move. So we're actually putting you pretty much in a baby position. You're on your back. Um, some people will flatten their back, and, and, and quickly addressing the, the prospects like a posterior pelvic tilt is silly. Um, to do that in any exercise, it's a, it's a flattening of your back, it's a flexion It loads to the disc, and it's non functional. We don't flex, we don't round our back in, in that athletic posture. We have a nice neutral spine getting into our hips. So in this position, you're on your back. Your diaphragm goes down by actually engaging your, your, um, your oblique muscles so to bring your ribs down. Plobates and your um, your ribs are parallel. And you're going to try to maintain that while maintaining a neutral lumbar spine. So because your spine is neutral, it doesn't have passive stability. It's, it's in that position where it can move in all of those, those ranges. It's unstable in. But the demand is don't let it. Now, as you bring your legs up, and we'll start with putting your hand against the wall to so stealing feeling some of the stability from the wall, much like training wheels. And that also allows those roots to stay down. That alone just, just puts the breath into your belly because you can't breathe into your chest. Now we're gonna to try to bring a leg up and perhaps as we progress another leg. And as you bring that up, and if at the hip, keeping 90 at the knee, 90 at the hip, you drop the hip, slowly tapping the heel, the exercise is a control exercise. We're trying to make it so the back doesn't move. We don't want it to move an inch. Before DNS, uh, Gwendolyn Joel and her group uh, out of uh, New Zealand, um, they would do this, but they would put a blood pressure cuff. She had a, a device called the Stabilizer, just a rigged blood pressure cuff behind your back, inflated to 20. I think it was 20 millimeters of mercury, and she'd actually have you look at the gauge, and if that, that pressure increased, it meant your back pushed down into the blood pressure cuff, which means it tried to move. And she wanted, she gave you t- 10 millimeters of mercury leeway. And if that thing moved anything beyond that, it meant your back moved. Either pressure came off or went down. It was a great feedback mechanism to try to engage these muscles. She was, in theory, engaging the transverse abdominis and multifidus together. McGill will say that they don't have the capacity. You're actually engaging everything. Um, so a, a reasonable debate, I definitely I side with McGill. I've read Jill's book It was one of the first you know, kind of rehab books that like came out and you know, read a cover to cover the whole gig, but things kind of built from there. But it's a really neat challenge to to get a, a, a dive down into breathing, bracing, stability through the torso through some type of dynamic motion. Then you start to take your hand away from the wall, you'd actually put a, a weight in. You can move arms and legs. There are a lot of variations, but but it's a great breathing challenge and demand. Uh, basically, stability optimized, where you have the breathing, bracing, and stability throughout the torso. At least in a, a flexion-extension cardinal plane, not, not rotation, uh, but at least or side bend. But um, yeah, it's a great exercise. On our website, we have a handout that's actually Craig Liebenson. He, uh, Dr. Liebenson, his text uh, and I got a hats off to him for what he's brought to the profession. He's just brought so many different people together and, and given so many resources and, and uh, he left them open source so people can use them so we actually have them on our website um but it's a tremendous exercise we're actually going to have some videos of some of the athletes uh doing those uh coming up pretty soon that'll be kind of fun to play with
0: Nice. Right, so make sure we link that in the show notes for the youtube video so they can go to that sure.
1: cool i love that uh you know, change the environment of the exercise instead of trying to over cue it, you know, example with the, the, um, pressure cuff, um, and trying to understand what's going on with the lower back. Um, and, and we kind of covered a lot of, of the lower back and I have definitely a, a better insight on what's going on in, in, you know, the, the, the core and, and how we're breathing and how that affects our performance. Um, you mentioned earlier, there's foundations that you guys look at. Um, is that one-minute plank part of that foundation? Um, and what are some of the other foundations that you guys are looking at in that eval uh, from from an athlete perspective that you want them to be able to do in that first 30 minutes? And, hey, if we have these, okay, now we can go have some fun and, and get some performance training in.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and it's kind of gender-specific as well. Uh, one of the things that we look at is just how many push-ups can you do, not modified push-ups. Just push-ups, can you do in a minute? Uh, Can you hold an elbow plank or a push-up plank for about a minute? Can you do a chin-up? And for women, it's just one. For men, I think it's five or eight. And after that, we can have some more fun. Um, Then from there, we work on coordination. So we'll do crawling and rolling patterns. Uh, then we also check for flexibility and mobility. So we'll have them go through a series of mobility exercises like Spider-Man stretches, uh, heel-toe touch, or toe touch from all the way above, uh, squatting, uh, and we'll just do basic lunging, walking lunges. Can they drop the back knee down without having pain? And and a single leg stance. And that's pretty much as simple as I can make it in what else that they need for their assessment. And then if they're doing good on that, I'll throw some dynamic stuff, which is like reaction training, which I'll just have them, let's just say we have our uh, aerobic studio area where I'm just gonna have them shuffle step, but I just point. So if I point to the right, you're running to the right, left, right. Do they pick up their foot? Are they gonna roll their ankle? So I say, hey, start with a light one, I wanna see if and this only happens when you get to the further up, right? Maybe they've had some Olympic lifting training and then we talk about Olympic lifting. Rarely, rarely do we ever get into Olympic lifting after, like within the first three months of training people because we have to, there's so many other things we have to clean up, um, but that's kind of the platform that we utilize for our initial assessment with people for our fitness platform. Uh, from from the therapeutics, we're probably going to look for more base movement competences.
3: We'll see if the thoracic range is uh, sufficient with the wall look for squat mechanics, breathing, um, do they have the, you know, the abdominal excursion, where is the breathing coming from, is it apical and up, um, uh, look for hip mobilities, uh, prone active and passive hip extension, Are mm-hmm. you know, they're psoas tight and you know, they getting compensatory movements. Uh, an active straight leg raise we will see if they're transferring load well when they lift the leg or they still stabilizing through the torso. Uh, sometimes we'll stress it a bit if someone's prone and, and they're lifting up in their hip. I've uh, seen some, you know, some of the, the pro athletes, uh, there are occasions some of the, the guys on the football team. Uh, they lift the hip up and as crazy strong as they were, you know, me with uh, a moderate amount of pressure, I can get that knee on down. The glute might engage, but maybe their whole torso rock. So they have an inefficient, they don't have a good coordinated movement pattern there. So because of that, their movement inefficiency or incompetence, probably because of some, some uh, compensation. But now we don't have that energy. So we're gonna, we're gonna stress it a little bit to see, um, like I said, every exercise is a test, but a lot of our, our tests are exercise based. We wanna see how do they move and where is that flaw. So from a, a movement competence or clinical standpoint, we're gonna dive a little deeper some of the basic movement patterns. And then kind of when we clean those up, um, then they they go into the fitness realm and and what Kost just talked about.
1: How how do you guys know once you get that information where where to start? Because most likely, like, we're all pretty screwed up in more than one spot. I know I am just as, you know, a former athlete and I still stay active and I'm not feeling great 100% of the time. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a hard guess on what that really is. And I'm sure you see people like that. Like, how do you know where to go from that assessment? Um, what's the first thing? What's the second thing um, that you try and clean up before you move? And, and do, do those things go together from practitioner to performance? Yeah, they go together beautifully.
3: And uh, it, it kind of dovetails back into what we talked about. Uh, oftentimes comes in with uh, their, their primary complaints. Say it's lower back pain.
0: We look for whatever
3: riles it up, maybe an orthopedic test, it might be a movement. So, say when they bend forward uh, to 45 degrees, we duplicate or increase their back pain. So that's my target there. Um Now I'm going to look for all the movement flaws. And of those, there's some that are, are really cardinal, they're really foundational. So we're probably going to explore those first off. But, but that's the work done in the office right off the bat, which I kind of mentioned earlier. So, now in the sense that now we're going to start playing with this stuff. So, I'm just looking for what may be an issue, right? My exam is kind of, I'm just gathering data. Okay, the hip doesn't move so well, they breathe poorly, the thoracic range is poor. Taking um, those things, I'm going to make some corrections there. Given a max size, I think, I suspect probably from experience, but maybe because it was the, the most key abnormal movement pattern, the biggest fish to fry, or so it seems, we're going to attack this. Maybe we'll do a thoracic mobilization on a foam roller right there in the, uh, the, um, uh, the treatment room, watching that they're doing it properly, etc. And then you're going to have them bend again. Now, if it doesn't feel much better, if it's really vague, it's not big enough. I'm very ambitious. Clinically, I want to see something hit the mark. So that didn't work. I'm just moving on. I don't even talk to him a whole lot. We just tried it. said, okay, I thought that might work. Let's try this. And it's funny because uh, um, I got my diplomate with Glebinson's team and then um, assisted him. And I remember seeing him work people up that other people had trouble diagnosing. And he, he would just gather this information. And typically, he hit it first time. He'd make a correction, have them do a supported functional reach to get the hip moving. And then when they bent again, they felt better. And everyone's like, magic. How the hell does that happen? Um, and I remember one time I saw him not hit the mark immediately and uh, so I would assist him in the program. So I was at his program a lot and I was like, oh, okay, now it's going to happen. You know, the magician you know, kind of guessed wrong and it didn't change the guy what, whatsoever. He just went on to the next thing and I didn't know how he did it. It just really seemed like magic. Went on to the next thing and then he had the person bend again and everyone's like, wow, cool, it worked. A- and it wasn't that he was wrong. He just wasn't right yet. And, and, you know, that's kind of where it's at. It's just, you know, kind of playing around with it. If it hits, it's like, okay, that wasn't the key link. That wasn't the main thing causing it. So then you move on. And once it starts to audit, now I know something. Because I go in realizing, I don't know anything yet. Um, and that's just the kind of cool part of it. I mean, I don't have to know anything. I used to think I did. I used to think, you know, I'm supposed to be the expert. I got to give you a diagnosis, give you an answer. And I'm very cool with I don't know yet. Um, I don't know until your body tells me it's right, and, and you know, I feel that from medical practitioners. You know, I, I, I've heard doctors on TV, at least, and I think in real life, you know, give someone medicine and say, okay, let's try this. Uh, it's very chill. You know, All right, let's, let's see where it goes. Call me in three days and tell me if it works. You know, they, they recognize it may not work. You know, everyone's individual. They study, you know, the, the, the sample size that we're studying is that one person in front of us. You know, so it, it it took a lot of pressure off too to not think that you're smart. You know, I just I you know, just kind of play where it lies, um, and then when it, it works, now we have some information and we build off of that.
1: I love it. Play play it where they're play it where it lies and and meet them where they're at. Um, reminds me of golf season's coming up
0: soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that um you were you reminded me when saying when saying that kind of the back end of that explanation something that i hear james say all the time and and that i've started to use more often when explaining exercises or basically return to play um you know rehab movements that that we ask our athletes to do they'll ask a question we'll say yeah you'll do this this and this and um this should work or it might not you know <laughs> and if it doesn't come on back right it's just one of those things where it's very, it's very relaxed it's like yeah do this. This is, this is going to do it. And if it doesn't all good, come on back and we'll figure it out. And I think there needs to be more of that, right? Cause a lot of times in our situation as strength coaches, we want to say, do this, this will help. I know what I'm talking about, right? Because I have this degree and you're here to learn from me. And I don't think it needs to be like that all the time. It's let's try this. Like you said, it's just on an individual basis. Let's try this, see what happens. If it works great. Awesome. If not, no problem. We learned something from it. Let's, let's, let's try the next best thing. Um, and that, and that's cool that that happens with you guys too.
3: It well, was a lot of troubles when, when we come up with a diagnosis because you're the expert, right? So they need to know now if it doesn't work, it means they must be really screwed up. It must really be broken <laughs> because the expert said, here's the name. You know, diagnoses more often, you know, giving something a name and we need you for billing, et cetera. Uh, I, more often than not, they, you know, or at least as often as not, they get in the way. Who cares what we call it? You know, did you hit the mark? Um, but once we get that name and we're convinced we gave it the right name. So then if there's a failure, it's not that we you know we're mistaken for the moment, let's move on. It's that, you know, the patient failed us somehow or you know, something congruent with what we thought it was and what we have in front of us. And really the only thing we have is what's in front of us.
0: And that becomes their identity sometimes I recognize too in the weight room. Oh, I can't, I, you know, I got back pain. So yeah, I've always had knee pain. So, right. And it's that's- that and consistently we see that I say, well, let's, let's fix that. Oh yeah. I had 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. No, I mean like actually fix the, the root of the issue. Doc-
2: and that's the thing. become this reactive type of person versus a proactive type of person that takes a little bit more energy on you to take care of you versus someone else taking care of you. It's nice to get a massage, but if you don't foam roll, if you don't do stretches, if you don't do a warm up, if you don't actually prime before you do a lift or a push or a movement, it really doesn't matter. I can't go in bench 315, just dry, I have to warm up. Even as a sport, let's just pick basketball. How many hours of training is done practicing? And then when you get the game, how many minutes do you actually have the ball of the whole game of the hours that were spent practicing with that ball so that's why we are more about proactive type of therapies versus a reactive and then with the athletes we i had one last week oh my backers just always hurt well what do you do about it oh, i just take some ibuprofen okay we're gonna take you upstairs so we figured out what was going on and now we take those therapeutics but do it prior to their fitness workout. And then they do their workout. And that's part of their warm-up. And that's okay.
0: Yeah, I'm speaking from a place of a, a person who was always when we met, I was dealing with, I mean, years of knee pain. And it was okay, ibuprofen, icy hot, you know, um, put some some bands around my knees or whatever I need to do to get through it. And then finally quarantine came and I said, All right, I gotta I gotta fix this because I'm sick of always just dealing with this. And finally once I Realized it was something that I could change. I was able to change it and have had, I mean, amazing benefits from there. So it makes it a little easier for me to have those conversations with athletes because I was there, right? And I and I just did that. And through, you know, some of the stuff that you guys helped me with, I was able to, I was able to overcome that. Um, a couple more questions, guys. Then we'll get into kind of our um, rapid fire questions here. But I want to know, and we, we've talked about lower back. What are some of the other things that you see? Let's say our weekend warrior athletes. Um, or even some of our, you know, kind of higher level athletes, when they're coming back from issues and injuries, what are some of the the biggest mistakes that you see that they have when they try to get back into full participation?
2: I think the biggest thing that I've seen in the fitness realm is I used to do something and then I went through an injury and I should be able to do that thing again because I don't have that injury anymore. One of the things Rob and I talk about is with patients before clients or personal training with patients oh i broke my arm back when i was in seventh grade so my shoulder hasn't been the same you broke your arm in seventh grade you 33 years old now it's not (laughs) still right so how do we make sure that we correct the pattern of that movement so then from there your arm doesn't think it's broken. So I just, I, I'm just not used to raising that. Cause remember in seventh grade, Henry hit me and I get it. Now there's emotional trauma to that arm and that movement is restricted, right? And so from that perspective, it's slowly introducing and slow is a subjective term, right? They might be like, Hey, I used to run a hundred meters in 15 seconds now I run in 25, hey, let's progress you to get to 20, right? That's better than you were. And where you were not, let's get to where you were back in 15 seconds. So it's always slower than you think it's gonna be. And patience, and there's a saying. it's like, what is it? Um, uh, youth is wasted on the young or something like that because we just don't have patience. So having patience is so key being a young athlete and trusting the process, but questioning it as well to understand the process, not questioning it to say like, this isn't working because I should be jacked and I should be back to benching 315. I did it before I hit my shoulder. Now I can't because of my injury, but I'm I'm not injured anymore. I should be able to hit 315 again. Well, it took you a long time to get 315. We hit that peak week which allowed us to get to 315, let's do a couple cycles of our periodization to then see if we can get to 285 or 300, and then from there, let's just see how you're doing as an overall athlete. Do you have mental hesitation in your movement? Do you have any performance hesitation in your movement? And then we'll worry about the strength transfers over into your performance.
3: I'd say from uh, the clinical standpoint, especially the weekend warriors, and they just they just power you know, right through the pain. They think you know, no pain, no gain, and they and they can just be stoic and and keep doing the thing that they love so much until. And the problem is when they finally do have to shut down, they want that quick fix, and you know, the last thing we want to do is stop running. And uh, convincing them that we may need to shut them down and then bring them back at a pacing at a, at a graded level that's appropriate. Um, can be a bit of a hard sell, and, and sometimes actually see it's not until they crash and burn, they 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 can't run anymore that they finally come in seeking help. Uh, but Their mentality is still they want that quick fix so they can keep running. Um, interestingly, sometimes uh, we'll see that that their times and their performance improves after we're done because the reason they had that chronic injury was there's an underlying inefficiency, and getting to that actually helps their performance but uh, especially those who aren't like the pros who are guided by a, a good trainer who, who know how to shut them down and convince the them. I mean, the athlete wants to go and, and that's wonderful. That's the mentality. That's why it makes you guys, you know, a, a pro. Um, but then the guidance that, you know, lets you see the big picture. Um, so, so that's probably one of the most significant things we tend to see is they need the guidance to know how to get back and, and where to shut down or to modify it. It might be participate, but at a limited basis. Um, I mean, almost every athlete, especially in any collision or contact sport, is injured at some time during the year. So it's also that blend between, yes, you're going to play with some pain, and that's okay. But at what point is it unsafe or is it actually something that's going to uh, go into next season or become a bigger issue? So it's also talking with the individual, finding out where their goals are and and where they stand in the season. But um, without that guidance, especially the people who don't have the, the, the trainers to help them out and, Put it in perspective. They, they overtrain, and and we'll see a lot of that. And that's an aspect too. We got so many of these boot campy type things that are are just rightly with overtraining. Um, and, and the mentality is great to get people moving, but but uh, in fact, it was, it was again going back to Levitt, and he says, "Open up the next one of those places. You got a lot of people moving, which is great, but they hurt people, so they're going to need you." Um, so that's one of the the, the areas we can to that.
0: Yeah, that's where I kind of started, and I. I got out pretty quickly because I didn't believe that I was doing the thing that was the best for the for the individuals who were who were there. And so that's that's tough. but again, if it if it takes people from not moving ever to moving a little more, I think that we we get some benefit there. Um, also, one more point on the the rehab return to play. another thing i uh, that I think is so interesting is we'll see some of our higher level athletes get injured. And then all of a sudden you see them work harder than they have ever worked in the weight room, um, or with their PT or with their Cairo to be able to get back onto the field and, and play the sport that they love. And then we have these conversations where I say, why did it take you to get hurt to be able to put that into intent, intent and consistent in consistency, excuse me, into your training, um, there's a there's another chiropractor uh, who James and I follow, Dr. Tommy John, who always mentions that training is rehab. Rehab is training. I think if you're always trying to train like you're coming back and you're trying to get back to hitting that 315 bench, or you're trying to get back into training how you felt when you were in high school, whatever that is, you would have to work pretty hard to be able to, to get back from an injury to be able to do that. So why don't we just take that Intensity and consistency in our training programs, out in our daily life, when we're not injured, when we're not hurt, to be able to to kind of maximize performance. So I think that's something for like just a good thing for athletes to to maybe think on or meditate on, and and realize that okay, just because you're hurt and you're rehabbing as harder harder as hard or harder than you ever trained, that doesn't mean you have to stop doing that. Once we're back in the sport, because we don't want to end up back here um, trying to fix fix some issues.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. What is your guys' role? And let me just say, for for marketing purposes, um, you guys were the reason that the 2019 Albany Empire won um, Arena Bowl 32. And we appreciate all your hard work uh, for that. He had a, didn't
2: it? <laughs> What's that? I would say CT had a big hand in that <laughs> well. win as well.
0: If it were not for you guys, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have done it. So we, we appreciate all your help. Um, And you're now with Albany's professional lacrosse team, which is cool, which, which I'm dying to get out there to see one of those games. So tell us kind of your role guys, when you're working with, with, with the pro athletes, when you see them on a, you know, a weekly or the kind of bi-weekly basis, what, what those conversations look like, what are you able to do to help the athletes and how you guys feel you fit in with the, um, the organizations.
3: A lot of what we do is you know it's kind of the need of the team. Um, uh, depends on how much we'll see them, and it's in it's in season. So in season, we're not trying to make these big changes necessarily, unless someone's out um, and we have a, a little more opportunity to work at some foundational stuff. A- at this point, it's a lot more kind of like the, the, the therapeutic intervention. We're trying to you gotta get beat up all year, so you know you got us, you got the the trainers, you've got massage therapy. Everything to keep you guys feeling good and primed and, and as healthy as you can to perform through the season. So in season is a lot different than off season type of work. Um, it's a lot of fun, you know. It's great, you know, interacting. Uh, and you guys were with us. You guys were local, so we did get a chance to work with you guys a little bit extra um, with this team. And it's specific to the team. This team is mostly off site all year um, or, or all week, and they come into play and then they leave by the next day. So that's you know even more just the therapeutic and trying to help them pre-game prep, get ready and, and you know help with some of the aches and pains and anything we can do to to get them a little more play ready for that day.
2: That's exactly. We just get them game ready and we're just there for the game days to make sure they're prepped. If we give them a little thing here and there to get them, help them out uh, during the time that they're not playing. That's our biggest bang for the buck if we can help them out outside of just playing at the time of the game. And we address it as best as we can. And it's a whole team, right We have the athletic trainer that we work with the massage crew that's also there uh, a bunch of pr- uh, primary care physicians we got the orphan New York also working there, so we try to coordinate all of our care uh, for the player and we kind of take our lead from this the uh, the trainer as well you
3: know when it comes to mid during the season type of uh interventions and keeping you guys on top of it they they're you know they've really got their finger on the pulse, so uh, wherever we can jump in but we try to take our lead from the, uh, the trainers because you know they're really leading that and way we can assist you guys and um, it, it's great having the interaction with those guys but, but they're kind of the lead party for that.
1: Awesome.
0: Yeah, I know you guys were and, and, I, and I said it jokingly, but I, I do mean it you guys had a big role that you played in, in, in our success and we appreciate everything you guys did. Um, last kind of thought on that just because this comes up all the time with our with our football players, again lacrosse players you have that are on turf my sport that I was playing professionally, we were on turf. Um, You guys helped me fix a multiple year long issue of turf toe. I still get athletes who get this, this turf toe, this big toe issue. We've got adults who have it. And a lot of times you just kind of try to stay away from it. Okay. We're doing lunges. It, It bothers you when you step back, put your back foot up on a, on a bench. Are there protocols that we can take to get athletes through turf toe? Because it is surprisingly something, we see way more often than I thought we would see. But I think it's a lot of, you know, our, our athletes who, who stop and decelerate and kind of slam their feet into their shoe. Um, And same thing with adults when they're just on casual runs. um, That's something that seems to flare up every once in a while. So any, any thoughts on turf toe before we move past that? Frankly, I don't
3: have any protocols for that. Uh, Um,
0: I'm aware of
3: it but I haven't gotten into into that as much professionally. I I'd have to demur. I'm not as familiar with uh um some of that. I can guess the stuff but there are definitely people who can talk
2: pretty sure. authoritatively on.
3: Maybe maybe yeah, you know, same kind of thing.
2: You can do decompression on it um but even then you have to figure out what effect comes from it. Like is it from the windlass effect um or wind glass effect and a few other stuff but you you really I'm not an expert on foot.
0: Yeah. Decompression. That, that might've just been it. I mean, I, it was horrible. I remember we did, we did a little bit of decompression and pretty consistently and ended up kind of, yeah, clean it, cleaning it up. Um, and again, I, I, I ask from a selfish point because I hear that more often than we should, especially when athletes get back into their cleats for the first time in, you know, months when they, when they go back to, to training camps and football, um, Okay. What a a couple of our kind of quicker rapid fire questions before we, before we wrap up with, um, what you think we're missing and where we can find you guys. Um, supplements, uh, obviously best case scenario, we get a blood panel. We see where we're deficient. We, we supplement things to be able to raise those levels. Are there general supplements that you, that you two suggest that adults or, or athletes take?
2: I mean, from my perspective, uh, protein's got to be the biggest thing and vitamin D um, with magnesium and calcium combo. Uh, protein is just, uh, as an athlete, they talk about ranges, but uh, if you can get at least one gram of protein per pound, you're going to be really good because a lot of athletes don't get a chance to get that. When you become athletic performance, which are a high-level athlete, you want to get to 1.2 at most, otherwise half. To one gram of protein per pound of body weight. So if I weigh 200 pounds, I should be getting 100 grams to 200 grams of protein. The higher end it is, the better it is. But once you become an athlete there, and high level athletes, you want to do 1.2 grams per body weight uh, of uh, protein. And vitamin D, uh, just where we live, uh, you're always in. fisherman. Uh, so definitely take as best as you can. I think it said not to exceed 50,000. So I personally take 15,000 a day, which is three 5,000 pills, i.e. interstitial units. Um, calcium and magnesium are really great, bone density, and just muscle uh, recovery for the magnesium. That's pretty much it. We don't really sell supplements or talk much on supplements. Protein is something that I harp on, uh, and sleep is probably the best supplement in the world. Sleep. Now, this is the kettle calling the... Hot black because I wear a wristband that says "sleep is for suckers." So uh, I am an advocate of getting rest more than sleep, but it is something that increases testosterone levels at certain parts of the points of the day or certain parts of your sleep during REM cycles. But um, sleep is—I I would do sleep then supplements because if you're not healing your body altogether, it doesn't matter how much protein you're taking in and vitamin D your sleep is off and it's no bueno. I'm the nap guy. I got a, I got
0: a hammock. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually doing a big sleep um, presentation here next week for our, for some of our gym people and, and our athletes. And that's going to come out as a, as a podcast as well. So um, I am a hundred percent backing what you're, what you're saying there about sleep. Um, When, when you mentioned Protein. Now, just, 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 so we're not being confused. You're saying food and supplements, not just supplementing protein.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest thing, um, uh, the reason I ask people to supplement with protein powder, um, is because it's hard to take in 200 pounds of pro or 200 grams, not pounds, sorry, 200 grams of protein. That would be tough. Day. 200
0: pounds of, of protein. Yeah.
2: So I think supplementing from powder is sometimes quicker and it's reduced calories. Uh, does chicken taste better than protein powder? Probably. But sometimes it's much lower in calories and you're um, just ingesting it and you can do it quickly. You don't have to you know, chew on the drive and such. It's just a shake and you're good to go. Um, and it doesn't matter what time of day, post-workout, 30 minutes, that's actually a marketing scheme that happened in the early 2000s, late 90s to promote protein uh, powder supplementation. As long as you're getting your intake for the day in, roughly, you're going to be good. It doesn't matter post-workout. There's no like, if you do 99% of the things right, yes. The 1% right after the workout is going to be good. But other than that, just protein, powder, as a supplement, but you should be eating most of your protein.
1: Whenever I would hear that, I would always just think back to, like, the, you know, cavemen hunting down, like, a bison, and being like, oh, hurry up, guys, we got to eat before we lose this anabolic window from the workout from killing this bison, and it just never clicked, it never made sense to me, and I always, go back to that mental image of a bunch of cavemen talking about their anabolic window.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. I think that's, I think that's great. And like you mentioned, most of the people who, or I should say, the same people who are trying to make sure they hit that 30 minute anabolic window, 30 minute anabolic window are never getting good restful sleep. So we need to kind of shift the focus, right? Between, between when we can get that protein in and, and actually something, something that's going to benefit us. Um, like again sleep a couple more questions for for my upstate new york people um people go up there to visit fall unbelievable time we're getting ready to go here as it's getting nicer and i'm stoked to see you know what uh, we had we had uh, kind of last season all the colors were changing and um you know all, all the hikes and the 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 trees are beautiful where do you two suggest people visit if they're going up to upstate new york Saratoga Springs, of course.
2: You got to. You got to come visit our facility. That's my. I am going to be by it. Great point. Uh, I will have to uh, add something in. We, we have patients uh, that we have to see. So if we can get to the later part, I don't want to cut you guys short. Yeah. We have patients in our office that are waiting on. So I just want to, I didn't want to cut, I don't want to be rude on that. And stuff. So if we can, um, I'll give you a quick list. Classic Lake Boston. Got to hit a
0: Perfect.
3: Like, George, with a little parasailing, mm. but go to the island.
0: Ooh. Okay. We'll check those out. Got them, got them on the notes. Okay. Last question, guys, so you can get. Oh, all right. All right. Notes taken. Um, what do you guys think we are missing from a strength and rehab side in the performance community? From the strength and...
2: strength and performance I think the biggest thing is mobility I think we don't do a good enough job teaching mobility and why we do it especially in the hips and shoulders that's my personal opinion that's what I've seen especially in the elder population that's talking about 30 and up Um, we're all strong we're all good but once we get to that certain tier, we're missing mobility and then power. And I don't mean like lifting 300 pounds. I'm talking about just jumping on a platform or jumping down on a platform. So uh, mobility and power are the two things that we're missing awesome. significantly after the age of 30. And this is backed up by Boyle speaks a lot on power. You lose about 2 to 3% of your power after the age of 30. Mm. Every year. I'd say probably the biggest focus is just making it you know
3: specific to the individual's needs and goals um I think sometimes we get into our protocols, so you know the the new shiny thing that we've learned so now we want to throw it into the mix and and we've got to practice and there's a rationale for it. we paid the money and we spent the weekend and we read the book um but then I think you gotta still filter back into the goals that that you have with uh your patient that that they help guide you towards it uh, it's patient or client centered you know what do you want you want it okay and then i think we have to get an assessment of okay you tell me what you want i think that's going to be quick okay you want that here are the steps and and here's how we
2: assess
3: and that's probably a effective too i think we have to hold ourselves accountable to our success you know if we're not hitting the mark we gotta recalibrate we're hitting the mark we build off of it Um, and i think we have those relationships um because I think it's easy to get stuck in. Okay, here's the protocol. We're going to do this without any endpoint or, or way to ascertain if we hit our goal.
0: Awesome, thank you guys. Uh, Multi Sports Rehab. The number is there um, on the, the <laughs> wall behind you. If people want to find you, uh, is there social medias that we can that we can find you on, or what's the best place?
2: We have our Facebook, Multi Chiropractic Sports Rehab. We have our Instagram. Instagram, sorry, multi-chiropractic, um, as well as our LinkedIn, uh, multi-chiropractic. It's all multi-chiropractic and sports rehab, whether it's on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. And Our
3: website has info, but we're, we're looking to put even more um, uh, patient um, educational things. So again, our goal is, is we figure we're going to be busy just by doing our best work. Um, so we want to really have, resources for people so uh, it complements our care or sometimes can actually replace our care in the sense that you know they may just need a reminder how do i do that exercise that work for me so they can go on and get handouts uh, but we're going to be working on a slew of educational videos so uh, you know, that 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 is a resource now we're going to try to build it as a a much tighter resource for uh for our patient base
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I need—I—I I, I know you need to take care of some, some people out there, actually give people tools to be able to take care of themselves, but we appreciate you making the time to be on episode 37 of Cutoffs and Coffee. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Remember to always practice gratitude. Tell the people that you love that you love them and to live your life stimulated. Until next time, we'll see y'all. Have a good one.